Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that always jumps the queue. As Theresa May tries to push through a deal that nobody likes and her critics on all sides insist that they could bash out a perfect alternative, no problem, give them a couple of hours, bosh, job done. We'll be looking at the multiverse of possibilities that await us over the next few weeks. With me are two of our regulars. Welcome back, Roz Taylor, Research Manager of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. Hi, Roz. What have you been up to since you were last on the show? Well, uh, the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission has launched our report, which is very exciting. We did that this week, and it's a lot shorter than the uh, withdrawal agreement. So get online and read it. Um, no, it's basically how um, ways to fix fake news and disinformation. And um, we kind of we think we've reached a crunch point, and it's time to tax the platforms and um, start acting on all the problems. <laughs> To tax the platforms for what well, just in general or well, every time their, they do something no no uh, no um, on their revenues on their advertising revenues so the idea would be that that would fund a lot of media literacy and a lot of extra work uh, to around misinformation and disinformation cool do, do, have they got money uh, they have got some, yeah. Okay, I understand cool. a, bit, a bit of it. Do they um, like tax? Not a lot. Uh, no, they don't. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's worth a go, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. They should try it. Yeah. Do you have to say saying. Truth, Trust and Technology Commission? Do you, do you, no, we you say... You never got TTC? No, we say T3. Yeah. T3. 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 Like, so you can even Google T3, LSE T3, to get to the report and read it. Which is a lot easier than Googling Withdrawal Agreement EU. <laughs> cool. you know, I think I think you can have a you know, shot chaser. <laughs> Why not have both? And Ian Dunt, editor of Politics.co.uk and star of the small screen, is also with us. Hi, Ian. How are you? Very well. The other day on TV, on Sky Papers, you had to set your good friend Melanie Phillips straight about the balance of trade between the UK and the EU. Not to pick on her especially, but do you find that a lot of Brexiters still uh, get the sort of basic facts mixed up, even when they're not trying to be dishonest? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because it's, it's the sort of pride of, you know, part of the stuff that we're facing is is the pride mm-hmm. of um, simple answers to complex questions. So the, the whole act of really trying to understand how things operate to so most of the Brexiters I deal with is, is itself a kind of treason in a way. So there's no... Then, that's why it's always that really complicated game of are they a cynic or are they a liar? Because so often their cynicism has led them to become a liar by virtue of not bothering to research the thing that they're discussing. Because she seemed genuinely... Thrown? By no, this I think no. I think she. No, I, th- I think that was a miss. I think we sort of had miscommunication there. Ah, I think okay. she does. I think she, she knows more than that. But certainly, for a lot of the people that mm. I speak to, uh, it's it's quite quite disarming just how little they know and understand. And then at other times, it's sort of a bit confusing. I, I was doing a thing with um, what's her name, Suzanne Evans, that dreadful woman who was in charge of UKIP for about two hours. <laughs> and in her case, she was answering a thing about third party sort of agricultural certification by talking about copying over EU law. And that was kind of interesting because I mean, obviously completely fucking wrong. But she'd got enough to know that the laws had to be copied over from the EU. So there was some element of engagement mm. with that there, but just not so much that you would ever be talking about something that was real. So you, they're all at different stages. But generally speaking, they, they are objectively ignorant, as well as the fact that they're trying to pull the wall over everyone's eyes. Good to know. Our special guest this week is Aisha Hazarika, comedian, political commentator, former advisor of the Labour Party and co-author of Punch and Judy Politics, an insider's guide to Prime Minister's questions. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for coming in. Hello. It's How a real you? pleasure to be here. The Great Romaniacs Podcast. <laughs> the official, actually, official I title. I actually haven't listened to it, but the person I was having lunch was like, that is really cool that you're going on that podcast. I was like, wow. And we have, and you have, we have mugs. mugs. Yeah. You have proper mugs. I mean, you guys are legit. You're legit. That's what to to be officially registered. I don't know if the ERG have these kind of mugs. I don't think so. They don't even have their own branded mugs. (laughs) So, did you always fancy comedy, or did working at the Department of Trade and Industry spur you to seek joy and laughter (laughs) elsewhere? (laughs) Well, it's really funny because when I've been doing this stand-up tour going around the country, people are like, "Oh my God, you're a stand-up." comedian how on earth did you get into that and I'm like I did advise the Labour Party for 10 years <laughs> they're like oh right okay kind of does follow yeah no so I started it a long long time ago and I think it was the sort of solitude of working it was it was basically the civil service was like the thick of it and I thought right there's only one natural way for me to go in that stand up <laughs> and this book that you co-authored with Tom Hamilton that's it Tom Hamilton um Punchy politics full of sort of juicy trivia little known history when you were researching it, what was the kind of anecdote that uh, that delighted you most? 
Well, the, the the anecdote that I love the most about my time at PMQs is that um, one of our jobs was to really try and keep Ed calm on a Wednesday morning because David Cameron was a really formidable opponent. You know, whatever you think about him, he was really rough with Ed at the dispatch box and he would take the piss out of what Ed looked like, what he sounded like, his every bit of his detail, his hair, his dad, his brother, his mm. politics, everything. So we had to try and keep Ed calm and one Wednesday morning we prepared these six questions on the badger cull. It's very much like the West Wing. <laughs> and Ed was getting really, really stressed and he was going to the loo and he was texting people and he kept messing up his hair which was very lovely and dark with a little stripe of white going through <laughs> it. And we're just about to go into the chamber and he turns around and he grabs me by my lapels and he's like, oh my God, I've totally got to ask you something. I'm like, what is it? Is it something on deficit reduction? He's like, no, honestly, it's much more important than that. Am I a badger? <laughs> <laughs> you see, he does have a sense of humour. People always used to kind of think he came across as humorous, but I didn't That was buy a sense that. of humour. That was him really asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, get Ed Balls. And Ed Balls right. came racing and he went, Ed, we've known each other for a long time. Am I a badger? I was like, okay, oh my God, is this man having a breakdown? Like, what is going on? <laughs> um, PMQ does frustrate a lot of people. Do you think that there is a there's a better way of doing it that would improve the the light to heat ratio, or is, are there just certain limitations to the format, and this is just what happens? I so when we came in to write the book, I mean, we obviously had like a passion for it. It had been a huge part of our life, and we thought it was a real privilege to work on PMQs. But we did recognise that it's the most hated aspect of British politics. Mm. It's this very awful shop window into politics, noisy, aggressive, you know, childlike, all this kind of thing. But when we researched it and we talked to different people, I think the truth is it is actually very, very difficult to get two tribes, and essentially you are talking, particularly right now, you're back to sort of two-party politics, really, getting two tribes to come together for this sort of thing which is very, very spirited and very, very passionate. It's very hard to sanitise that from, from where we are now. And so while I definitely think it's far from perfect and it is quite ridiculous sometimes... I personally think if we changed it and we took out the theatre and the heat and the light, I think we would actually miss it. And I think if we had better performers right now in the mm. leaders of both our parties, mm. we'd be having a much better quality of debate. And when you're having a good level of debate, those little extra bits, you know, the kind of people being a bit naughty and jeering on one side or the really good bits of humour and wit, you know, that brings it all and elevates it to quite a good experience. The problem we've got now is we've got two people who are so lacklustre as leaders with, you know, they, they sort of almost cancel each other out with how bad they both are. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're sort of equally opposing forces. So I actually think the heat has gone out of PMQs. I think it's not quite as spirited as it used to be because basically people are so bored by it. And I think we, I mean, I would love right now, or wouldn't we all, but to have two leaders they may well be completely opposed, but just had a bit of gumption and a bit of wit and they were good orators and were able to craft a good argument. Because at the end of the day, if you are either prime minister or you are seeking to be the prime minister, you should be the best advocate of your party's arguments. And we don't have that at the moment. And obviously MPs enjoy uh, acting like they're giddy with mirth every time their, their guy sort of lands a blow. Can you tell when you're there the difference between the kind of rote laugh goes here kind of laugh and genuine kind of delight, oh, you know, when there's something witty. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's a real difference as well between the Labour benches and the Conservative benches. I think the Conservative benches are... A lot of it is because of the background, the schooling, the sort of public school thing. They're much easier at sort of playing their part in the sort of jeering mm. and all of that kind of stuff. The Labour side is much more lumpen. The Labour side, you know, isn't... They're not quite as easy to... You know, they won't just cheer a line if they're not happy. They cheer very, very instinctively. If they laugh at something, they really, really laugh at something. If they're dismayed, they all kind of collapse into their seats. But the best lines in the House of Commons, the moments which really electrify it, particularly from a humour point of view, is when actually both sides of the house are laughing because it's a genuinely funny, mm. funny moment. And those moments are are great, you know, and they're often, they can be quite self-deprecating against the, you know, the person who's who's doing it. But they're the bits that I think really, really work the, the best. And I, I remain really unapologetic. I think wit is an incredibly powerful part of communication. I think a good political joke is not just a joke because it's got a ridiculous punchline. It's often a great way of um, capturing 
the truth behind a situation so mm. it can be far more powerful than a sort of slightly worthy rant um, which you know Corbyn is quite good at doing a sort of worthy rant but actually if you can wrap the point the political sort of sharp dig you're trying to make in something which is funny then that the impact is just much bigger I, I don't imagine either May or Corbyn were the class clowns at their respective schools <laughs> <laughs> they're both so no. profoundly unfunny aren't they I mean, beyond anything else, just neither of them is remotely funny. Which, I, I mean, not saying that I trust all comedians, mm. but, um, but yeah, there is something I find just very suspicious. It's like people who don't read much, mm. or people who don't like music at all, or people who... It's sort of people without an evident sense of humour. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I totally, also, I think it shows that you're not, you're not very aware of what's going on around you, and you're not very aware of yourself as well if you don't have a sense of humour which again it's really evident with both of them that they're just in this kind of blinkered you know we're just in mm. this tiny little world and we're not sort of looking either way really mm. well we'll get on to them and other Brexit related <laughs> characters later uh, is Theresa May's deal dead or just desperately unwell and do we believe anyone who says there's a better one around the corner and what happened to the paper tigers of the ERG did that crucial 48 letters of the 1922 committee get lost in the post also, the latest research into the link between austerity and voting leave. And Damon Albarn's band, The Good, The Bad and The Queen, returned with Maryland, the first post-Brexit concept album. Brexit may have turned Britain into a chronically divided political basket case, an international laughing stock. But is it at least inspiring some good tunes? <laughs> All this after reminders from Roz. Just like Theresa May, we enjoy standing frozen and terrified in front of a crowd of people as they glare at us. <laughs> hoping that we will say something sensible for once. <laughs> so, we're doing another Romaniacs Live at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Monday the 10th of December, our last live show of the year, and there are still a few tickets left. Ian, Dorian, Ingrid Oliver and I will be talking over the exciting events of 2018, giving it the trenchant analysis of what will definitely happen in 2019 and taking a few audience questions too. Get your tickets now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and Patreon backers get a discount on tickets as well as all that lovely Romaniacs merchandise, early access to the podcast and a weekly column from one of the panel too. Oh God, it's my week, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Search Patreon Romaniacs or go to the Romaniacs Facebook page to find out about backing us. And it's leicestersquaretheatre.com for t tickets to Romaniacs Live on Monday the 10th of December. Thanks, Roz. Now take a deep breath for this week's Brexit news. Let's start with Theresa May's rollercoaster week, the state of the deal and the leadership challenge that wasn't. Tory moderates like Rory Stewart and Amber Rudd have been talking up the deal as the best we're going to get, but the numbers aren't looking good for the government. Ian, uh, remind us who's against it and if there's any cause for, for optimism on the government side. Um, who's against it is probably around 70 Tory MPs. They've either publicly said, you know, th there's a website where they all sort of gather. Is it called Best for Britain or something like that? I can't remember. It's not Best for Britain. That's no, Naomi's that's lot. The other one. That's so sorry, Naomi. That's the good one. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Whatever, whatever they Wor are. You're thinking of Worst for Britain. That's their one. <laughs> Is it is it Brexit Central? Is that the no, one? No, 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 no. They've got a special whatever the fuck. Yeah, open, you don't you don't need to visit Britain? it. No, 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 no. no. Okay, no they're, they're, they're the goodies up. as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Poor people, we've just libelled. <laughs> um, so I mean, some of them have signed up. There's about thirty or forty of them signed up there. There's others that have written letters or written into um, or made speeches or they've written into their newspapers. Just about seventy Tory MPs that we think will vote against it. I think that number will probably whittle down, but it would need to whittle down by an awful fucking lot before she had a chance of getting that deal through. Um, you've then got all of the opposition parties, including, it seems, the DUP, um, who sort of de facto ended the confidence supply arrangement that they have with the government mm. this week by firing a very carefully calibrated shot across the bowels by basically not voting with the government on finance bill. The finance bill you would consider to be part of, I mean, it, it feeds into the budget, and that's a core part of how these kind of arrangements work. However, because, I mean, skullduggery is, is pretty key to the way the DUP operate, it wasn't picking off any individual budget policy. So it was, you know, a shot at someone's shoulder, but not directly at their heart and very carefully calibrated for that. So, no, it doesn't look too great. However, on the plus side for her, she went to the CBI, the CBI got behind her, as we expected, the business community were always going to take anything that involves transition for any amount of time. It doesn't mean that they think it's a great deal for Britain or anything like that. It will just give them transition, so they'll back it. And of course, by virtue of how these deals operate, you're on the, as soon as you finalise a deal with a negotiating partner, you are now on the same side of the table. 
and the EU are also going to be gradually getting behind May. So she has some advantages there, and I think that that will probably reduce the number of Tory MPs who would vote against the deal when it finally comes down to it. And obviously everybody else has a better plan. Um, <laughs> but the EU said, I think maybe after last week's podcast, they're going, well, the, the, you know, this is it. We're not really up for... Uh, this is what they've said anyway. They're not up for negotiating another one. To which Jeremy Corbyn said, well, that's their view. We have a different view. <laughs> Which, which is my reply to anything, for example, parking in a disabled spot or failing to file a, my new statesman collar. I have a different view. Um, what do you think? Are the is the EU serious on this, or is it just obviously the best thing that that they should say at this point is that we're not, you know, they're not going to invite other offers. But do you think that actually there there, there could be? They, they have to say that. I mean, and they're not just saying it to us. They're also saying it to France, which is concerned about fishing rights. Um, and it's also saying it to Spain, which is concerned about Gibraltar. So they're saying it on both sides. And they mean it, but it doesn't mean that they're going to stick to it. And, I mean, we mentioned last week in the emergency podcast, there's, there's a chance that if that thing's voted down... Theresa May or whoever replaces her, but I think Theresa May would go back to Europe, they'd come up with some tinkering, which is just a face-saving exercise, really. They wouldn't be messing around with the substance. But they would be prepared to do a sort of theatrical reopening of negotiations Um, and then come back again to the Commons when they've had the shit scared out of them by the precipitous decline in sterling that would follow from that vote being being shot down. So I think they'll do a little bit, but ultimately they're serious. They're not going to, in any substantial way, reopen negotiations. Not even for Jeremy Corbyn. Ros, last week we were wondering if we needed to get camp beds in the studio and do a rolling emergency podcast. Um, but the ERG's coup attempt uh, has, has fizzled out somewhat. Yeah, um, they were going to send 48 letters and they, they didn't. And I just don't know what happened. I mean, <laughs> how can they, you know, promise this and then not deliver it? And then yesterday, um, <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg was, was uh, standing up with, uh, flanked by elderly white men, um, tell, uh, telling us that it was time to get a, a rid of Theresa May because if we didn't, then she would be leading us into the next election and we couldn't have that, could we? And it's like, what? I mean, this is supposed to be about Brexit. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm really, uh, yes, I'm really disappointed in the energy. No. Um, <laughs> it's pathetic. It's really pathetic. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, but it, I'm nonetheless each time I'm slightly, you know, taken aback by just how disorganised these people really are, and yet we're so frightened of them. Did you see that leaked WhatsApp where where Bernard Jenkins was? Uh, no, I didn't. Approved of a, uh, an interview, I think maybe on on today with Peter Lilly, and goes, "Oh, he made excellent points, and we should promote this, you know." And he showed the remainers of the BBC, you know, retweet, boost, boost, and then someone went. Well, why don't you send your letter into the 922 committee? Uh, you know, sort of, how's that for a boost or something? And it was just you could you could just see this sort of real frustration that some of them was just mm. like, well, why aren't you doing this? I, well, I don't they're, actually they're not, understand why they're not doing it. I think because they don't. Uh, if the government falls, then um, uh, Corbyn will get in. I mean, I'm pretty I think it's. I think the latest opinion polls show a something like a 40-36 split in favour of Labour. So they know that if they topple Theresa May and if there's a general election, then Labour will get in, and that is uh, really not the outcome that Rees Mogg wants. Mm. Or they'd have the one-year delay. I mean, if you go into some kind of leadership contest, if she survives, which you'd have a pretty good go of surviving, actually, mm. you then can't do anything about her for another year, and that takes them way part. They'd obviously like to get rid of her in April. You know, once we're mm. out of the EU, she's, she's been used as the human shield that they required, and then you change, and so then they wouldn't be able to do it for much longer. So there's plenty of obstacles to them doing it, not least of which is the sight, the spectacle of them fucking around like this when she's brought the deal back. The yeah, timing yeah. is all wrong. The time for them to do this was when the deal falls in Parliament. Then all things are open and that strategically would be the moment to pick. Doing it now is just utter incompetence. Well, it's quite amazing, you know, that cliche, horrible cliche, weeks a long time in politics, but sort of this time last week, we are all in the tiz, you know, taxi for Theresa, you know, <laughs> game on, we're going to have this huge leadership crisis, Thatcher, all this kind of thing. And here she is a week later, you say really showed up by the CBI. Um, you know, Corbyn's missing votes because he's going off home to watch I'm a Celebrity. You know, it's sort of, it's how, you know, these guys look like absolute buffoons. That press conference that ERG did was like something from another time. The idea that all of these kind of old white men are the future of Britain, it was absolutely hilarious. My favourite tweet was somebody, um, I think it was Labour Paul, who said, um, it's lovely seeing how they've recolorized some of this really old footage. <laughs> <laughs> and it's available on iPlayer for another couple of hours 
I mean, it literally was like, oh my God. But the one thing I will say, the one thing that we do know that is a consistent truth in British politics is that doing a coup is very hard to do. It really is. Gordon Brown survived many a coup. Patricia Hewitt and Jeff Hoon tried to get um, bring him down. Uh, David Miliband botched up a coup where a coup a coup a coup um, <laughs> where James Pennell resigned and Caroline Flint did. Um, he then kind of staggered on to the to the general election. Of course, Jeremy Corbyn's hand was strengthened when Owen Smith tried to mm. depose him. So. If you're going to try and do one of these things, you have to be swift, you have to have momentum behind you, and, and it's like comedy, timing is everything. You have to really go for it. It's that, that wire line, isn't it? You come at the king, you best not miss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not that Theresa May is ever likely to be but, mistaken but, for but Omar just, from the but, wire. But to, but to, to your point, I, I, think, I think Jeremy Corbyn's going to be Prime Minister now because I think no matter when they get rid of her, it's a bit like the situation with Gordon Brown. She may stagger on to the general election, as Gordon did, but it will be a drag anchor. The overall aggregate effect will be a drag anchor on the Conservative Party come that next general election with whoever they might have. Maybe it will be her. If they have any brains at all, they'll get rid of her as soon as yep. as soon as we left the EU. Because you'd have a moment where there's all of this investment that's being held back. And once you got into some kind of transition, some of that investment would come back in. Mm. And you wouldn't, so you'd be able to say, look, we've Brexited and there hasn't been any damage to the economy, as all the Remainers told you. Of course, the reason is because of the fucking transition that they for ages tried to stop. But whatever, that won't be the thing the public sees. You change leader right then. You get a small sort of little, little boost by having a new face at the top. That is the time to yeah. go to the country. And they'd be crazy not to do it. Yeah. At that but, but I don't think that whichever face at the top would be appealing enough. Mm. Um, I think there just isn't uh, a chance of um, a leader, a new leader of the Conservative Party winning over the electorate. Hmm. I really? agree. I, yeah. I agree. I just well, think that person wouldn't have enough time yeah. as well. to. Yeah. Beca- it takes quite a long time to establish yourself and, you know, sort of... And it looks bad, you know. It looks like they've kicked her out when she's got them a deal. It looks bad. It kind of reeks, you know. They don't like it. Just And you know how people react to the last election when they felt they were being kind of jumped into re-electing a Theresa May. I think they would feel the same way. Mm. And Aisha, you've been, uh, you've been critical of Corbyn at certain points, uh, supportive another, particularly after the last election. How do you think that he has handled this sort of chaotic fortnight? Uh, well, I think his strategy on Brexit, while I think it's not been hugely noble, I think it's been quite effective. I think this idea of riding two horses, this constructive ambiguity served them very, very well. I mean, it was sort of triangulation that even your arch Blairite nemesis would sort of blush Mm. at. And he's actually been able to do that with some degree of authenticity because we all know he's a proud um, Eurosceptic. So he's been able to, to do this. But the point has come where he has got to pick a side now and I've been I've actually just been doing a stand-up show all around the country and I do a sort of political town hall afterwards so I've been speaking to Labour members and and other political party members all around the country and people are saying look we need some clarity now from the Labour Party about what its position is and the position that Keir Starmer got the Labour Party into at the Labour Party conference was quite a positive one everybody felt they could sort of coalesce behind it but then of course Corbyn did that interview with Mm. Dush Bigel and said well actually no Brexit can't be stopped which really hurt Labour Party members. And I cannot tell you that Corbyn is, you know, the minute Corbyn, now is the time to just say, look, we're going to get behind the party members. He's really into party democracy. Now it's time to get behind the country who think this is a bit of a disaster, whatever way you look at it. You know, whether you want to go for the people's vote or whatever. But I think if he just was a bit more clear about this, he would bring everybody together. The party would absolutely unify. Still, some people don't like him, but on the whole, Brexit is such a big issue for the Labour Party. Whatever side of the Labour Party you're on, I can speak to an arch member of Progress. I can speak to, like, an arch member of Momentum. And they are their number one concern is Brexit right now. So that would bring the party together. And I think... Corbyn could be in this good position where he creates this powerful coalition to win the next general election campaign, possibly with a small majority if he brought, you know, some of those anxious Remainer Tories, obviously Lib Dems, Greens possibly even could get a few, could damage some SNP um, constituencies up in, in Scotland. My concern with this particular last 24 hours and 48 hours is... Who has come down to Westminster and is showing the leadership about bringing this coalition together against the deal? 
it's not Corbyn, it's Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. I would like to see him taking that role. And before we move on, Ian, last last week I think we were talking about that kind of strange feeling of sympathy for, for, for May's predicament, uh, despite um, all of her kind of other policies and behaviour. Um, she seemed to kind of... Um, uh, annihilate that this week when she made that hideous speech about members of the EU27 jumping the queue mm. uh, thus implying of course that she's always she's ready to open her arms to immigrants from all around the world and yes. it's just like oh god if these, these polls got out of the way you know, I could just hug all the Windrush people, people. and just tried to debate <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh sorry <laughs> I mean, she was just hoping that nobody had noticed her appalling record on, on immigration and Alex Andreu um, from the podcast wrote a very powerful sort of uh, open letter to to her um, about how about how he feels and and you know just the offensiveness of that jumping the queue comment considering how delicate things are for me at the moment Ian, why do you think she thought that was a good thing to say right now oh because i mean just like everybody else she projects what's in her head onto the country and what's in her head is anti-immigration uh, roland <laughs> smith who's this liberal lever um and is really i think is really honorable for really publicly get, just going through dark nights of the soul just trying to think like how do i feel about all this you know pro-immigration but doesn't like the eu eventually this week wrote this thing where he just said this isn't really a brexit policy this is an end free movement policy that requires that you do all this stuff with a single market as an afterthought that is why we are where we are that's why we have the specific brutal contortions of a deal which she's presented us with because in her head from the very beginning it was literally the first thing she said when she came out of that Tory party conference in 2016 was we're going to end free movement that's what this is all about that's why we are where we are now that's why she came up with the idea in the first place and when she talks that way it's because she thinks that's what people want to hear and it's almost funny, you know, because I keep on coming back to that people do have, people do generally want a reduction in immigration, even lots of Remain voters yeah. want a reduction in immigration, lots of leaders. But actually, when you start talking in this way, most people don't really like the sound of it very much. And they, they, it's quite a dangerous game to be playing and one that isn't actually necessarily in tune either with what people necessarily want or the manner in which they wish it to be spoken about. I just think that's so perceptive and I think that's absolutely correct. And I think one of the real criticisms about Theresa May is who is Theresa May? What does she really... Hmm believe in what really motivates her what is her political mission we know that with jeremy corbyn we know that with some other people and i think the mask has slipped this week i think we have had that reveal into what does she actually care about it's reducing immigration and this has been a theme that she's carried with her you know since the home office that was her kind of raison d'etre the hostile environment in her mind and i you know i get all the things she's a stoic woman she's having a hard time blah 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 but i think she has got a bit of a little englander mentality in her soul and she just genuinely in her heart of hearts thinks that yeah there's just too much of it mm. and it's not very nice and i think she's fatally miscalculated the fact that since the referendum immigration yeah it still is an issue for a lot of people it's not quite the raging raging issue that mm. it was it wasn't like the, it's not like i think the, it's not the number one issue for people anymore but she's revealed to us the public what she really cares about what to her is her political mission i think it also it, it's interesting because she's a geographer her degree is in geography and it's a thing that she understands in the home office um freedom of movement and it was obviously one of the key things going on there but it's uh, an element of her academic training which is coming out in what she does um and to me that's that's very interesting too can i very briefly talk about the deal because I've actually read the fucking thing now, and it was you're horrible. You're the one. You're the only person that. You're like the only person. You haven't read all five hundred. Are you like an author that's done all this research? And by God, you're going to stick it so, in your so novel. You so please let me just. So no, I, I haven't okay. read every single page. Holger Hestermeyer, this brilliant uh, German trade expert, one of those few people in the world that he's one of those trade guys that if you just say, "Is the following true?" and he says yes, you're like, "I now know that that is true," and for that, he's worth his weight in gold. He's great. And he did a sort of list of uh, sort of list of content. So he allows you to zoom in and out of it rather easily. There's something in there that I find this very, very um, concerning. And it's partly because if we look at the, the, this sort of lays out how the Brexit debate will go, if she manages to get that deal through and it happens, this pretty much maps out how it's going to go for the next few years. Because first of all, you have the extension to the transition. Now, that needs to be done in July 20, by July 2020 to have an arrangement on that. So that is a new cliff edge that we will face almost within a year of going into transition. That, it looks like, can only be done for two years. At the end of that period, you cannot extend transition again. So then you get hit by the backstop. Now, we 
are not going to be able to do a deal in that kind of time, even if we could magically figure out what the fuck it is that we want, which we've shown absolutely no sign of knowing over the last two years, we wouldn't be able to negotiate it, we certainly wouldn't be able to implement it, and even if we did all of that, we most certainly would not be able to ratify it with it going around all the various European parliaments. That means that we're going to hit the backstop, almost necessarily by virtue of of the time limitation on this thing. And the backstop, the more you look at it, the more horrific that thing looks. It is bare bones as fuck. Like, so on road haulage, 5% of our current traffic would be able to go to Europe. On agri-foods, we would see checks on everything that goes over. On basic products, they would be checked, industrial products would be checked at the border as they go over. This is... Like, actually, dropping into the backstop is an insurance... I mean, forgetting the Irish, but I'm just thinking about the British economy, is a minimal insurance policy, minimal protections that are offered there. And it's a pretty ugly situation. And looking at the deal, looking at any kind of realistic assessment of how long it would take, it seems almost inevitable that we would hit it. Didn't you say in PMQs today that... um we, as long as we were in the back, uh, as long as when we hit the backstop, we would stay in the single market until we came out of the backstop. Well, I think she said that we would unilaterally keep all the all the other regulations, yeah. but of course, legally Which, for the EU, it doesn't mean shit. I mean, you can decide to do whatever you like unilaterally, you know, do whatever you like, but it doesn't really make any actual difference. Yeah, and I got a question: Is it true that if we if we do extend that transition period? We get hit by what another is it ten billion? Well, that, see, that's interesting because that the the exact amount that we would pay is not going to be worked out in their usual seven yearly cycle. It'll be worked out by the joint committee, which is better. That means we get a voice in it. But of course, the reason that the EU are being vicious on these cliff edges is because they know what it does to us. It mm. takes away our leverage. It means that we suddenly have to make decisions and we'll pay whatever yeah. in order just to protect ourselves. So we will once again, just like before, pay them whatever the fuck they ask for in order to secure that transition. That whole structure of it is based around putting Britain in the least advantageous position. And the sick thing about it is that it's the Brexiters that push for us to be in that position by going, oh, I couldn't possibly tolerate a longer transition. I could have And it's, you are li- you're making the same mistake that they made right at the beginning of this process, undermining our own negotiating posture and trapping us in this straitjacket for the next few years as we constantly give the EU whatever they want just to avoid disaster. We're just going to be transitioning forever, aren't we? Well, no, I think it's worse. We're going to be backstopping forever. forever. And that is like 10 times as bad as just being in transition. Wow. Good times. (laughs) Jazz hands, the existential crisis. (laughs) The never-ending existential crisis. The year is 4021. We're still in the backstop. (laughs) Eat your gammon food pills. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, the LSE Brexit blog posted an interesting post about austerity driving sport for UKIP and Leave uh, recently, just a couple of days ago, I think. Yes. Roz, uh, you tell us about its findings. Yeah, this was very interesting. It's by someone called Timo Fetzer, who is an academic at Warwick. And he basically looked at the uh, amount uh, which people had lost as a, as a result of austerity policies over the last few years. And um, that varies hugely. It's about 100 and something pounds in the city of Westminster to 800 pounds or so um, in places like Blackpool. And he found a strong correlation between the places that voted to leave and where support for UKIP increased and the amount that people had lost as a result of the of, uh, austerity. And this is obviously pretty fascinating um it's also he 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 found as well some data that suggests through recent polling mapping that onto those constituencies that people in those constituencies those same ones are the ones who are now changing their minds about brexit and all this is particularly forceful i suppose because it comes in the same week that the representative from the UN um, gave his verdict on austerity policies and he said the, this week it was a very very strong piece that the Guardian ran that the Guardian, uh, that the UK had inflicted great misery on its citizens due to social engin- re-engineering effectively and <laughs> it, that, this is really strong stuff mm. and Ian you, you tweeted the other day about how uh, unpleasant it was to see some Remainers gloating about the you know the the strongest leave areas being being hardest hit but sure you know sort of like well this is what you voted for Mm. but surely this is kind of the you know the the most tragic aspect of brexit is that people uh voting out of 
you know, frustration about being, um, I don't really, I left behind is such a cliche, but, you know, really losing out in, in things like austerity. The bedroom tax, I think, was mentioned there as a really, as actually a really big driver of, of leave votes. And for them to then be hit again with massive job losses uh, isn't really not something to crow about. No, exactly. Or you look at um, sort of lots of uh, Indian voters, the, the, the typical curry house stuff that Priti Patel did so much, of basically going, look, we know it's really hard for you to bring people over. We know you, to the Pakistani voters. But you have Pakistanis who, who were brought up here, the, the, the absolute fucking disgrace of it, who were brought up in this country and can't even get their grandmother over to come to their wedding because she's denied a visa because they're not even allowed to visit. You know, like you're, you're a British citizen, but ultimately you're less than a British citizen, right? Because a British citizen is allowed to see his grandmother when he wants to and you take those voters and go vote vote for brexit because that way will make immigration better for you but we'll take care of the other ones and of course it is not turning out that way and it's very easy i see a lot on twitter people going well oh, it shows you fucking right this is, this yeah. is what we should you think like no always the right has divided the poorest people it's the same when you get with like deserving and undeserving poor you know the shirkers versus the workers. you always see the division of the people who are having it hardest and that is how they win and then to turn around and go like i hate the voters for being suckered by it's exactly the wrong response yeah. the right one is i fucking hate the politicians for lying to them and getting away with it and so it, it just seems to be I, strategically wrong but also like the morally wrong conclusions i just to. so I mean, like a such a lather of a It's so nice to podcast. I don't have to fight with anybody. It's so, <laughs> so relaxed. This is like a mini break for me. Like, oh my god, this is amazing. But I really, I do really agree with. That. I did this very interesting um, d- debate, which I chaired, which was uh, uh, Black and Asian people and Brexit, and that argument came up so many times. Mm. People saying, "Look at this." this complete lack of parity in terms of how you know me as an Indian or an African person is treated compared to this and this divide and rule thing is is has worked brilliantly and the idea that Nigel Farage will be happy with lots of black and brown faces yes, coming exactly. over oh do me a favor come on but the other thing just picking up on some of the Romanist stuff there is a really really big point here and I when I did my stand-up show last year I poked a bit of fun at some Romanians who, again, were sort of missing the point Mm. on all of this. And I did have friends. I actually had a friend who rang me up the minute this stuff happened and her number one concern was like, how am I going to tell Jocasta she's not doing Erasmus? (laughs) And I was a bit like, basically, swathes of this country are about to get fucked. Like, you know, no offence, but Jocasta is going to be okay. Now that joke, that got quite... And then somebody attacked me on Twitter this week going, people making jokes about Jocasta and Erasmus, I'm looking at you, Ataisha Hazarika. And it's like, I do think, you know, there is... And I I hold my hands up. I have been kind of shouty and ranty at lots of, you know, Brexity people as well, particularly on phone-ins that I've done and things. But I think Ian is right. I think... You know, shoot shoot the people that sold them the snake oil. Go after them, uh, not not the other people. Yeah, I mean, and and for me, this really strikes home because I think when you're when you're struggling, when you're struggling, whether you've got a disability, you're ill, you haven't got enough money to live on, you don't have time to think about politics. You don't have time to analyse arguments in the way that a lot of Remainers do. You just you just think, oh, for God's sake, get me out of this situation. Something has got to change. And one mm. of the big drivers of the Leave vote was people like that saying, oh, God, it can't get any worse. Something has got to change. Well, of course it can get worse. But for these some of these people, it couldn't get any worse, really, as far as they felt. And and that is what a lot of people, well, some people, some Remainers just don't, I think, get. And they mm. don't understand that not everyone has access to the uh, amount of information that they have. And they live very, very different, information-poor lives. Well, mm. what I did find encouraging in that, yeah. in that blog post was that the, the argument that you will hear from, from many Brexiters, but I'm thinking it's, it's, you know, I keep hearing it from like Giles Fraser and Brenton O'Neill or whatever. It's like, these people, this is the choice and you can't let them down. Whereas logically one might think that people that, that, that voted leave actually to express uh, dissatisfaction or outrage at other aspects which weren't to do with the EU might then change their mind. And of course, there's a lot of people... Uh, dedicated to the idea that no, even though they were kind of lashing out in the wrong direction, they stand by the lashing out. And actually, in this blog post, it did suggest, it, it did, I mean, there's data that shows that these people, a percentage of these people, are changing their minds. They do get that this is not going to make mm. things better. Yeah. But I also think there is something to just understand about 
the anger, the, the emotional aspect of this. You know, we're living in an era... That, remember that um, undercover thing that Channel 4 did on Cambridge Analytica? And the most interesting thing about that was not the smoking gun. It was the fact that the guy said, look, you, you don't win elections right now with facts and information. You win it with big feelings and big emotions. Mm. And that's, that is that is the the heart of all of this stuff. And I think even for people that maybe haven't changed their minds and are still absolutely, look, I reserve the right to shoot myself in the head, you know, in terms of... I think we as Remainers do have to try and have some empathy for the very live emotional rage that a lot of people are feeling and try to kind of understand that not just by spouting off the economics of at yeah. them and everything like that but just try and have you know that empathy we, we we like to sort of think that we on the remain side own empathy but i think we could have a bit more empathy when mm. we're having these debates with people mm. finally a bit of culture <laughs> damon Albans. i hate that well i thought we had a rule against culture it's all gone andrew mark it's like the andrew mark someone's <laughs> 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 Like, bring out a bassoon. It's like the best bit of the Andrew. In fact, the only good bit is watching a politician look very awkward when they bring out some band to play some music. You're like, oh Christ, that looks and, like and a dreadful room to be in. I actually have had discussions with politicians about whether they should stay still or do a little bit of sofa oh, dance. Oh god! And surely the former. Might... Yes, the former. <laughs> right. don't, don't, start, don't start rocking out on the sofa. Now I want no to see some some stool dancing here. <laughs> As Damon Albarn's The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. His band with Paul Cinnamon from the Clash, Afro drummer Tony Allen and Simon Tong from The Verve has returned after 11 years with Maryland, a quasi-concept album about post-Brexit England. Uh, you've obviously all listened to it because I asked you to. <laughs> did, I didn't get that email. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, 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 did, what did you make of what you've heard? I, I like choruses, um, so I didn't really. This didn't really work for me. It's very sort of sloppily, sloppily. It's the kind of thing that my friends that really, really like music really, really like, and they're all like, "Oh, like me, you, I you like it because I like music." I'm sort of looking yeah. at you right now. Yeah, yeah look, but it's like, "Oh, did you hear what he did then?" I'm like, "I, di- I didn't really, to be honest. I'm just waiting for a chorus or something." I it's not angels by Robbie Williams, it. isn't it? <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's no angels. That's true. But like, I mean, it felt like that, that the kind of melancholic lilt. Did feel like it was it was summarising something, and I do I have a sympathy, I have a lot of sympathy with him because he was part of the sort of soundtrack of you know my teenage years and, and those early Blur albums. In fact, throughout really with Blur, he felt obsessed with the idea of of Englishness. Really, it's not really Britishness. He's not really doesn't really talk about Britishness very much. It seems to be something about English and especially about the pier and sort of you know places like Blackpool Pier and this old kind of decaying sense of Englishness. And I do because that was part of my childhood. It, it kind of complemented. Like I, I became quite patriotic later in my life. I had to go away sort of when I was 18 travelling and then it hit me and I didn't really have it before. So when I came to it, I, I suspect that a lot of it was influenced by that kind of sad feeling you get with lots of Blur albums about the country around you. So for that, it's particularly fascinating for me to watch him go through that thought process now on the back of Brexit. That's great. The music, I've got to say, not so much. Well, I, I, over the summer, uh, I spent a weekend in Ramsgate and Margate um, which sort of set me up for this album hmm. because they do, you know, uh, Ramsgate in particular noticed we were just, uh, yeah, five minutes walk from the seafront and the seafront's brilliant um, and it was really gorgeous and what you'd expect. And five minutes back, it's just like streets full of of shuttered shops and it, and it seems very different. It just seems like it's just, it, you know, it's just putting on a on a brave face and obviously he's, you know, I always think so, I mean, he's Essex but I associate him with sort of, you know, Kent as well and hmm. he's, he's done stuff in, in, in Margate and um, I do think that that, that that it's picked up a thread that was always there. If you listen to This Is A Low and lots of stuff mm-hmm. of part life and modern life is rubbish. It's not really going, boy, oi, ain't Britain great. You know, mm. there's always this kind of like melancholy and kind of, you know, a, a slight, th- you know, sort of threat of violence mixed with eccentricity. Yeah. It's like he's, it's this ambivalence. He's so brilliantly ambivalent about the country. And even here... You know, he's just, I mean, it's a slightly groan worthy line, but he, he refers to it as a, an Anglo existentialist crisis. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he really, he, this, this basically, you know, Brexit has brought to the surface a lot of things that he's always thought about England. And in an interview with, uh, with John Harris at The Guardian, he said um, that the question, this would have been quite a deep ballot paper, I think, for a referendum. He said the questions we really should have been asking who are we and what do we want to become? Which obviously you can't, it's not a yes, no. 
question. But the stuff that we... Do that entire country needs to be put in therapy. Just like people just slumping in the voting booth going, I, don't, I just don't know. But I, I thought Is there that, a God? Has it been a pointless existence? The stuff that we talk about sometimes in our more profound sort of beanbag moments on the show, you know, about what this reveals about, what Brexit has revealed about the country and how the country sees itself. And we talk about different sort of kinds of patriotism and exceptionalism mm. and this kind of weird fabricated sort of theme park version of, of Britain's past, specifically England's past. And this just seemed like, in tandem, I think, with, with Jonathan Coe's Middle England, please come on the podcast, Jonathan Coe, um, <laughs> It, it feels like this album is, is is art getting around to talking about Brexit, but obviously not, to Ian's great disappointment, you know, the backstops. And, the, and the just chorus, in, just in time supply chains, you know. Um, but about what England thinks of itself yeah. and all of these things that have kind of come to the surface. But I think that's a huge part of the Brexit story. I think... I think the English sort of existential, cultural and national crisis is really, really prevalent. And I think it's very interesting that the Scottish referendum happened as a sort of prelude to, to all of this thing mm. because Scotland over the years, and I do give credit to, to the SNP for some of this, created a very interesting cultural project. They kind of co-opted a political project into a cultural project. And... I'm not a massive... I don't really want Scotland to be independent. I would prefer Scotland to stay within the, the union. But as somebody who is Scottish goes back to Scotland a lot, Scotland is more comfortable with itself. It's more at ease with itself. It's more culturally at ease with itself. There's been a great kind of... And a natural movement to sort of um, revitalise interest in Scottish culture, heritage, art, writing, literature, all of that kind of stuff. And it hasn't sort of been hectoring, pointy-pointy. It's actually been done in quite a cool sort of organic way. And I think, you know, Scotland's not perfect at all, but there does feel that there's much more of an ease about it. England, I think, is fascinating because... This distortion between, you know, London, which is just, you know, exploding with wealth and opportunity and talent and hustle and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, you get two hours on a train to sort of somewhere like Ashfield outside Nottingham, former mining constituency. They're really, really struggling. It's only two hours on the train and you're like, wow, our country is, England is so divided. The people in this like former miners club where I visited with my good friend Gloria De Piero, who's the uh, Labour MP there, Labour MP leave constituency. They, they don't feel any connection. They don't, they don't feel the England that they sit in is the same England that we sit here in Soho. It's a completely different country. Well, and I think there's a huge part of that, which you're absolutely right, which I think Damon Alban has always kind of tapped into that tension about the sort of... We've got this almost that ambition to be so proud about our heritage and our future, but we don't really know who we are as a country, England. And I think this was inspired, This album was inspired by conversations in a lot of these kind of towns, which even with Blur, I remember they made an effort years ago to go and play different towns. They weren't just doing, like, you know, the arenas in the, in the big cities. Ros, what, what did you make of it? And have you come across any other kind of uh, illuminating sort of post-Brexit art? Um, no, I haven't. I didn't, I didn't really like uh, it very much. It felt to me a bit like being pressed up against, you know, the back of a fairground ride, having someone's tongue shoved down your throat and just kind of, this kind of <laughs> Oh god, I'm not enjoying this deep history there I'm not, I'm not enjoying this, why aren't I enjoying this Oh god, I should be enjoying this um, but, but that was Yeah This album's gone to hashtag me too territory <laughs> No, no, actually, I don't think that's ever happened, but anyway um, <laughs> But no, I didn't, I mean, I, I like uh, like Ian, I like Damon Albarn's earlier work, <laughs> But I, but I always find, I found it kind of bouncier. I mean, you know, modern life is rubbish, but you're holding on for tomorrow, yeah? I mean, it, it's mm. just kind of, uh, it's it's more lively. It's gotten more, um, and even, you know, the Mr. Tembo and that period, you know, I quite that, that sort of thing that he has going on. So I didn't really enjoy the album. In terms of Brexit literature or whatever, no. Um, and I don't, uh, I know that Ali Smith's Autumn was supposed to be very Brexity. And I didn't. It didn't really do it. For it wasn't me. really. No, it wasn't really. Um, and it was. It was also felt very forced to me. I don't think Brexit literature is actually about Brexit. Um, I think it's about. It's. You know, it's going to be about the problems that 
people have that are actually not necessarily anything much to do with Brexit, to go back to my earlier point about austerity. I think we have to get to grips with austerity and what that's done to the country um, and deal with that. I think that will be more productive ultimately than Brexit. I suppose what I find poignant about the record and about the Jonathan Coe novel, where, where he's revisiting characters from the, the Rogers Club, is it's almost like revisiting characters from part of life. It's almost like huh. it's almost like both of these writers are looking at, at sort of scenarios, themes, even specific characters, twenty years later, and going, "What's changed?" And obviously, one thing. A huge thing has changed. But behind all that, of course, austerity is in. I mean, so many things are in there. And I suppose it's always like, I was going to say it's like This Life 10, but This Life 10 wasn't very good. But I do like revisiting kind of people further down the line and just seeing how life has made them sadder. That's what life does. If you enjoy podcasts and you want to do your bit for Britain's trade with its valued European partners, you might enjoy another show made by our backroom team. Be There with Dali Loudspeakers is a music podcast from the Danish manufacturers of high-end audio equipment, and every episode looks at the stories behind great music. You can get it on your favourite podcast app. Just search Be There with Dali. From the latest episode, here's David Hepworth, co-founder of Q and Mojo magazines, on how one session musician transformed Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. If you listen to his early demos, it's just a kind of standard Lou Reed song. There's nothing remarkable about it at all. But he goes into Trident Studios in in the middle of Soho in 1972, I think it is, and uh, and they have Herbie Flowers turns up to his book to play the bass, and Herbie turns up with both his double bass and his electric bass. Mm-hmm. Because he knows if he can play two instruments, he gets double money. <laughs> and so they doubled up. The, and, of course, what's the thing that everybody still knows and loves about Walk of the Wild Side? It's that mm. bass line. Mm. Now, Herbie Flowers probably got 35 quid for his day's work. Mm. Lou Reed got a career. A little bit of Be There with Dali Loudspeakers from the makers of Romaniacs. Get it on your favourite podcast app. <laughs> Our special guest this week, as you've heard, is the comedian and commentator Aisha Hazarika, former special advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband, one-time business advisor at EMI Records, home of Damon Alban back in the day, and now a regular broadcaster and columnist for the Evening Standard. So when you, you you advised Ed Miliband for how long? from 2010 to 2015. Ah, you were in it for the whole, yeah. the whole stretch. So I wasn't with him for his leadership contest. I came on board after he won. Um, I was like with Harriet when she was acting leader when Gordon Brown stood down after the 2010 general election. And then I went in to help Ed do PMQs and then I did joined his media team. Um, and then I kind of went back to help Harriet do Levis and stuff, but I kind of split my time between them. But I did all his PMQ stuff, helped write his big conference speeches and... Just was sort of around quite a lot to help him. Those are great conference speeches, I've got to say. Like, oh, I, I, thanks. No, at all. Like, I mean, n- not much of his leadership work, but I was, each conference speech <laughs> was, was was no, but each conference speech was really so much was really good. Yeah. And they were, they were, well, the thing was that there was an argument there. There was a structured argument, and very often, years later, like sort of, you know, predator capitalism and things like that, yeah. would actually become part of the language that people used and the ideas that they had. Well, you know, people tried to mock the speech at the time, but it actually did very well in the, the long that run. That Predators Producers one is fascinating because that was like the sort of canary down the coal mine to this whole new responsible mm. capitalism stuff. And I remember afterwards, you know, everyone was like falling around laughing about what a disaster it had been. But we, we, we had to, you know, you ring around all the editors and you get Ed on the phone to the editors. The editor who said most to Ed, this is going to knock you down about how you know, he was like, the speech was a bit all over the place, but he said the idea is absolutely right was Paul Dacre. Okay. Mm. Yeah, he said this, there is absolutely, he was like, my readers, this is what they're, they're moaning about, these big companies not paying their way, the the little guys getting squeezed left, right and centre, mm. there's really something in this. Fascinating. Talking mm. of canaries and coal mines, how much was your uh, scepticism on on your radar, on on, on Ed's radar, like how you you were skeptical as in as in kind of the this sort of danger because I, I you know I do obviously we've, we've talked many times on the podcast about how um, people really weren't sufficiently braced for the referendum and aware of all the forces 
that you know that could potentially swing it the wrong way. Um, was it was it kind of discussed? Was Europe generally much of a, a priority? Okay, so I think the flashpoints were there, particularly on immigration and culture change. I mean, look to be honest, though, we saw that towards the end of Gordon Brown's time, the infamous Gillian Duffy moment, mm. of course. Um, Ed definitely had um, lots of, you know, there were lots of kind of growing issues about immigration. Um, UKIP was sort of starting to be much more active. I remember there was a by-election in Manchester, um, which we were very, very worried about. And I think all parties sort of panicked about how to handle that sort of rising Euroscepticism that UKIP agenda. Remember, they did very well at the local, at the obviously the EU uh, elections. And I remember we we sort of panicked. There was and the shadow cabinet and the Labour Party was very split about what to do. There was half of the kind of group saying we mustn't give these people any oxygen. We just have to close down the argument. Don't just don't even engage with it. And there were other people, the kind of Caroline Flint saying, look, particularly in areas like Doncaster, saying, look, you can't just ignore what these people are are, are saying. You know, it's going to sort of come up. So I think. The signs were there and we just didn't know what to do. So on immigration, like it was really hard for us because we didn't want to look um we didn't want to look weak on immigration because it was an issue. We didn't want to look racist, so we decided to look clinically insane and we produced that mug. <laughs> Which is the most infamous bit of kitchenware yeah, of exactly. the Miller Van years. It was extraordinary because, funnily enough, they did not. I mean, it, it's so classic. It's like in the absence of having a policy and being able to actually discuss it, we're like, here's a bit of mildly racist crockery. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, they were disaster. And, you know, they didn't fly off the shelves, as you can imagine. We had this sort of terrible situation. We had. Tons and tons of immigration mugs left over, and at some point somebody had to go and say that we've got too many immigration mugs. We're going to have to send them back to where they came mm. from. It was all like slightly <laughs> sort of all the all the irony. But there there were flashpoints that I just think nobody quite knew how to deal with it. So we would go into areas. Ed, I remember, did a visit to Thurrock um, after one of these kind of elections that hadn't gone so well, and immigration was just you know raging as an issue, and. We had lots of economic arguments about it, but I think we didn't, we, we couldn't quite, we were not strong enough on coming down on one side or the other saying, look, you know, immigration is a good thing and, you know, your, your fears are about investment and lack of, we never quite sort of got to that place. We sort of swithered in, in between. And I think we just looked quite weak on it. Well, well, I also remember from that period, I mean, if I, if I remember rightly, that, that, um, Labour started off being very critical of austerity, but the opinion polls were were sort of very much in favour, and that kind of led them to kind of cede more and more ground. Was that another subject where there was a kind of lot of disagreement or a lot of kind of uncertainty of how to, particularly as said, if you seem to have like the public against you? Of, of sort of where to put yourselves. Yeah, I mean the austerity stuff was um, difficult because in the in in I think for Ed Balls and Ed Miliband and a lot of the the kind of big figures in the shadow cabinet, they absolutely didn't agree with the sort of um, scale of the cuts that were being proposed by the government, but they also had this kind of psychological sort of feeling of incumbency because they had been in government for such a long time, they could almost sort of quite understand the fact that there were going to be constraints on the public purse and austerity was very much the kind of um, orthodox way of thinking about the economy at that time but I think it also goes deeper for a lot of these guys particularly Ed Miliband, Ed Bowles, Douglas Alexander they had had their apprenticeship as, as special advisors and researchers with Gordon Brown and of course the great thing that Gordon Brown did hugely successfully was turn the Labour Party from being this kind of basket case of a party in the 1980s with disastrous sort of shadow budgets and Michael Foote and spend, spend, spend. He made the Labour Party seem economically credible. So they were part of that journey and I think they still felt they had the scars on their back about mm. Labour never being taken seriously on the economy. So I think that also kind of hung over them psychologically. So even though they probably felt kind of squeamish about not being against austerity enough, I think there was part of them thinking we will get an absolute kicking from the outside world if we are seen to look um, kind of weak on the economy. But ultimately, that sort of really didn't serve them that well in the end. 
There was, of course, the option. They could have said, well, fine, but we're going we're to put the emphasis on raising taxes rather than cutting services. But I suppose that was considered too dangerous. That was absolutely considered too dangerous. And right at the end of our time in government, when Alistair Darling did put, you know, that 50p... Mm. You know, that was a that was a contentious decision. There were lots of people in the cabinet at the time who were very, very unhappy, obviously more towards the sort of right of the party, but saying, hang on a minute, we've fought really hard as a as a party to to you know, as Peter Mandelson famously said, you know, we're quite intensely rich about, you know, the filthy rich getting richer as long as they pay their their taxes. So that ideologically was quite a big thing for the for the Labour Party. And one of the reasons why I think we have to understand why Jeremy Corbyn came in, why he won so big, why he's proved to be so popular, it is true, and I'll put my hands up to this as as an advisor towards the end. I think we did lose our our radical heart at the end of 18 you know uh, you know uh, uh, you know a good stint in in government i think we we became very incumbent we be- we did sort of run out of ideas i think sometimes we became a little bit like we were an extension of the cbi you know we were always sort of more worried about what the cbi would say rather than actually what would our members say what would our trade union members say what would the people who were really really here to serve say so i think we did slightly lose our way and that is a fair criticism and that's why when jeremy corbyn came along the membership were thirsting for something which was definitely more to the left than where all the other kind of candidates were and i heard yet another discussion uh today or yesterday i can't remember um about alignment realignment of the parties and, and would there be a another sort of centrist party um maybe this is the what the one that can be nice about the CBI. <laughs> um do you do you do you feel that that labor at some point is kind of destined for for some kind of split or at least a splinter not down the middle but at least a sort of splinter group or do you think from what you know of the party that it just kind of that it would just instinctively has this you know wants to hold together. I've been grappling with this so much of late and I think that there's definitely a big emotional feeling with with some people that there should be a split. I feel that that is going to be a really hard thing for the Labour Party to do and I'm still sceptical about that sort of happening because when you get away, particularly from London, the heat of all the kind of you know media sort of chat and, and, and stuff here and you, you go out to the Labour Party, particularly outside London, there there just isn't that desire to break away. In fact, if anything, there's a sort of renewed sense of pride in what the Labour Party stands for. Now, not everybody loves Jeremy Corbyn. Lots of people are very dismayed about, you know, foreign policy and his stance on sort of Brexit. But to your point about austerity, that is something that Labour Party members feel really, really, really... In fact, probably above everything, they would probably put Brexit on austerity as their sort of number one... Um, yes. issues for a lot of members they have said look you know the, there's always also i think there's a kind of a misunderstanding about the membership of the labor party people think that the labor party has suddenly just become very left wing in terms of the membership under corbyn the membership of the labor party has always been to the left of the leadership even with you know um you know tony blair i mean that's always been the the way and i think there's so much sort of history and nostalgia which is part of the brand and of, mm. of the labor party you're not in the labor party because you really want to, you know to be a sort of political kind of lobbyist who happens to be an mp you're you're wrapped in the story of the labor party your community your parents might have been in the trade unions or been a local councillor there's a, there is a lot of kind of nostalgia with the labor party so if you break away from the labor party that is a big, big psychological deal. You know, that involves being shunned by your community, by large parts of your family, your friends, your social groups. Lots of Labour commu- people come from their communities. Um, I think there's a small number of MPs who might split, but I think the numbers are quite small. I think quite a few Labour MPs will just not stand at the next general election. Yeah. And you've stood for Parliament before three times no i tried to be selected i tried to be select yes really unsuccessfully (laughs) (laughs) my it's an amazing track record of incredible (laughs) would you would would you give that another go and try and be the 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 funniest mp in the commons or do (laughs) you because boris johnson's there don't be ridiculous (laughs) do you look at it and think oh I'm, i'm well out of it 
and so I tried to get selected in Scotland and I was very um, crestfallen because I never got selected and all these great people got selected over me but then they all lost their seats when there was that <laughs> SNP wave so, so I who's laughing now? <laughs> 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 no not at all I'm a much bigger person than that I'm so not I'm so not um, so I think my time was not right for because you know there was this big uh, SNP wave and I was not considered really kind of Scottish enough at the time because I was had been living down in London, so that is that's fair you, enough. You seem very Scottish. Thanks. By the I, standards of this yeah. podcast, very <laughs> I do, Scottish. I, do. I feel, I feel very. Um, I'll take that. But um, for, for the time being, I'm really enjoying being a political commentator. I'm just having the freedom to say what I want because I think being an MP right now, and um, well, there's some MPs that can just say whatever they want right now in Parliament because they're not really that affiliated to their party. But I think for quite a lot of the other ones, the good ones, it is quite hard for them to actually sort of express a view. So I'm having. A lot of fun. I couldn't come and do podcasts like this, could I? Oh, I don't know. We get MPs in oh, here sometimes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. We get the occasional. Dave, yeah, David Lammy's Rupert Hook. He's our kind oh, of. He's yeah. one of our. Um, he's one of those people that but doesn't seem to be checking himself. Like that, oh no! It's quite. Mm. It's quite. It's we don't quite get. Hard. We don't get front benches, do we? Yeah. No. Well, we we try. We try. <laughs> <laughs> But they don't, they don't answer their emails <laughs> for some weird reason. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the show. No breaks at Time Capsule this week. Uh, Aisha, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thanks so much. I've had such a nice time. It's been so much fun. <laughs> we try. That's, this is like a safe space. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like whenever you're used to having to do the debates thing to come here, it's just like, oh, thank Christ for this. I know, it's, it is. It's Because normally I have to go on and have a fight with Julie Hartley Brewer, so this is like oh, quite relaxing. You poor thing. <laughs> oh, Christ. And who's that at the studio door? <laughs> Julia Hartley Brewer. <laughs> <laughs> She's not getting in. For this week's closing clip, we've got a Dutch sign-off from long-time listener Monique Hawkins. My friends and family in Nederland kijken met verbazing naar dit bizarre Brexit-spectakel en vragen mij steeds: wat zijn jullie toch in godsnaam aan het doen? Ik kan alleen maar zielig mijn schouders ophalen en zeggen: ik weet het ook niet. That means my friends and family in the Netherlands are looking on in disbelief at this bizarre Brexit spectacle and keep asking me: what in God's name are you guys doing? All I can do is pathetically shrug my shoulders and say: I don't know. Excellent work, Monique. Remember, we need your European clips to so record a short message on your phone, keep it clean and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Listeners, don't forget those tickets for Romaniacs Live on Monday, 10th of December in London. Tickets on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks to Ian, Roz and Aisha. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional massive shout out to our latest Patreon backers. Uh, hello and thanks from me to William Culver Dodds, David, obviously David Cameron, Tom Hulbrook, Isabel Vogel, Mark, and Ian McKellar. I've oh, gone excited there. Up to Ian McKell. Like, yeah! <laughs> no. <laughs> we also love Ian McKellar, obviously. Thanks from me to Lee Epstein, Mark Oh Not That Suguru, Ross Burton, Jeff Bussetill, Christine Turney, and John Gates. Finally, thanks for me to Owen Murphy-Evans, Timothy Green, Dan Firmage, GCU Grey Area, apparently an E.M. Banks reference, and Mike Brownstone. Many thanks. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.